Was Maverick LAPD officer Chris Dorner's recent death at the hands of police authorities an unfortunate consequence of a high-stakes shootout, or was it a deliberate execution to contain a threat to the department? Investigative journalist and former LAPD officer Mike Rupert shares his perspectives on this unique case in this half hour. Does the deposition of scientific evidence shedding light on the 9-11 attacks in a UK court of law represent a major turning point for the 9-11 truth movement? Two members of the group Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth weigh in. And to what extent is the US political system rigged in favor of big moneyed and other entrenched interests? We get insights from former Georgia Congresswoman and Green Party nominee for president, Cynthia McKinney. On today's show, high crimes, corporate rule, 9-11, and the murder of Chris Dorner. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of Thursday, February 21st. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website at globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. U.S. Senator Christopher Coons is saying the U.S. may play a more active role in the Malian conflict once a democratically elected government is in place. The chairman on the Senate Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa explained to reporters in the Malian capital of Bamako Monday that U.S. law prevents the government from rendering assistance to the current government since the government of President Amadou Toumani Toure was overthrown in a military coup last year. The U.S. has been supporting the effort to halt the advance of fighters in the country's north by providing refueling, transport, and intelligence to French forces. Earlier that day, the European Union formally approved of a military training mission to assist French efforts in the region. That comes to us from Press TV. Cleanup from the February 15th meteor explosion over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk has begun with an estimated 9,000 workers involved. President Putin ordered the operation to support the 1,200 people injured. Most injuries are related to broken glass with an estimated 200,000 square meters of window glass damaged. Officials think the cleanup will cost about $22 million. The meteor, thought to be roughly 10 tons and made of iron, broke apart in the atmosphere similar to the Siberian incident in 1908 when a meteor devastated more than 2,000 square kilometers of northern forest. A large fragment has possibly landed in a nearby lake, creating a 20-meter hole through the ice. Divers on Friday were unable to find any evidence on the lake bottom. They plan to try again in spring when the lake ice has melted. The Minister of Emergencies has asked for calm and is assuring citizens that this incident is rare and has ended. Fifty people may remain in hospital with cuts and bruises. The blast, when the meteor broke up, released several kilotons of energy, but none of that is radioactive. That comes to us from the BBC and Reuters. 
independent researchers will have a rare and possibly unprecedented opportunity to challenge the official account of 9-11 in a court of law in Horsham, United Kingdom. For three hours on Monday, February 25th, experts like chemistry professor Niels Herrett, architect Richard Gage, and former intelligence analyst Tony Farrell will be presenting detailed submissions on the 9-11 attacks to a magistrate. The trial is actually related to the refusal of a UK filmmaker, Tony Rook, to pay a mandatory TV licensing fee. Rook has argued that the BBC has misrepresented the evidence and the individuals discrediting the official account of the 9-11 attacks. Rook believes that this amounts to a cover-up of the truth of that crime and therefore active support for those terrorist elements not yet implicated in the crime or held to account. The non-profit organization Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth are calling this legal hearing a unique and valuable opportunity for the 9-11 Truth Movement. Recently declassified government documents support the claim that Bush administration officials had long sought the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and that they sought to link the Iraqi leader to the 9-11 attacks even before such evidence existed. Notes taken by an aide to then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld at a high-level meeting involving Rumsfeld, Vice Chairman to the Joint Chiefs of Staff Richard Myers, and other top aides document the Secretary's desire for, quote, the best info fast, the need, quote, to talk with Paul Wolfowitz for additional support for the connection with bin Laden, and, quote, the need to move swiftly, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not. Talking points from a November 2001 meeting with CENTCOM Commander General Tommy Franks further detail a brainstorm of how to start a war with Iraq. Sample pretexts include U.S. discovers Saddam connection to September 11th attacks or to anthrax attacks and dispute over WMD inspections. That comes to us from MSNBC. Tens of thousands of Greeks took to the streets Wednesday as part of the first general strike of 2013. The 24-hour action, organized by two labor unions, representing half of Greece's four million strong populace, saw crowds in Athens march towards the parliament, blowing whistles and beating drums, while police fired tear gas at youth demonstrators throwing rocks. The strike also saw schools shut down and hospitals reduced to emergency staffing levels only. The demonstrations were in opposition to the austerity measures introduced by the Greek parliament in recent years, which have imposed unpopular spending cuts and tax hikes, impacted salaries and pensions, and sent unemployment soaring to over 26%. The measures were necessary to secure bailout money from Eurozone countries and the International Monetary Fund and forestall a default of the country's economy. Over 20 strikes and violent protesters have erupted in the country since the economic crisis began, but have so far failed to change government policies. That comes to us from the BBC. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office has confirmed that fugitive ex-cop Chris Dorner was killed by a single bullet to the head, which they said appeared to be self-inflicted. Police had been on a manhunt for the former LAPD cop for about a week before trapping him in a cabin in Big Bear, California. Dorner, accused of killing three police officers and formerly charged with a murder, had died during a deadly shootout with police in which the cabin he was in erupted in flames. Police authorities deny deliberately setting the fire, but admit the fire may have been ignited as a result of the projectiles aimed at the cabin. 
Some reports suggest police may have deliberately prevented Dorner from escaping the burning building, subjected the building to heavy fire, and actively prevented the firefighters from putting out the flames. That comes to us from RT. The largest manhunt in LAPD history came to a final and violent ending last week when Chris Dorner died during a standoff with police at a cabin in the middle of the Big Bear Forest in the San Bernardino Mountains in California. Dorner was wanted in connection with a string of shooting attacks on police officers and their families starting February 3rd that left four people, including two officers dead and three officers wounded. Dorner explained in an internet manifesto that he had declared war on law enforcement officers and their families, accusing the LAPD of, quote, internal corruption, racism, and concealment of excessive force. Joining us to share his insights into the Chris Dorner's actions and recent death is Michael C. Rupert. Mike Rupert is a former LAPD narcotics investigator, whistleblower, and a 1973 honors graduate of UCLA in political science. After attempting to expose links between organized crime and the LAPD, he was forced out of the department in 1978 while earning the highest rating reports possible and having no pending disciplinary actions. Mike Rupert is an investigative journalist and author. He's the founder of the now-defunct from the Wilderness Newsletter and the website CollapseNet. He hosts the Lifeboat Hour for the Progressive Radio Network. So thank you very much for joining us, Mike Rupert. It's good to be with you guys. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about uh, the death of Mr. Dornan. There, Dorner. There have been a number of questions surrounding that. Uh, uh, statements from the San Bernardino uh, Sheriff Department denying a deliberate effort to burn him to death, but seemingly contradicted by intercepted conversations from police scanners. Uh, we hear uh, quotes like, burn that effing house down, and we're going to go forward with the plan with the burn, the one we talked about. Now, I've, I've heard previous interviews with you, and you stated your belief that he would not be taken alive. So I'm wondering uh, now if, if anything about this whole, uh, uh, the way this situation has ended has come as a surprise to you. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the first day that uh, uh, the world became aware of Chris Dorner, it was, a, it was totally obvious to me and, and remains so that uh, he was never going to be taken alive because he could not be allowed to talk. He was he was dangerous not uh, as much for what he would say. I do believe that he was improperly fired from LAPD. Uh, but it was what he was. It was who he was. That was the big threat. In, uh, he was, yes, he had been an L.A. police officer, but he was also an officer uh, in the United States Naval Reserve, a lieutenant officer grade three, uh, who had uh, uh, served in combat, who had had command of a unit, who was highly trained, who worked with uh, U.S. Navy SEALs and Special Forces operatives as a riverine inserting uh, uh, divers and swimmers uh, in fresh water. Uh, he had done oil rig security in, in the Gulf. Uh, but he was also an educated black man uh, who had a college degree, who had a long, clean life, and it was because he was all three of those things that he presented was a glaring in-your-face pile of, of, of the gravest inconsistencies in the existing system. Uh, and, uh, and, and as a living, breathing body, he, he absolutely brought all of the contradictions in modern society 
uh, and an utterly corrupt uh, governing paradigm uh, to the forefront, and he was never going to be allowed to talk. Now, I mean, you're talking about the man he was, and I just want to mention just to add to that, that um, a retrieved uh, bit of his biography from the Enid News and Eagle from 2002, which describes Dorner and a classmate uh, who found a bag containing nearly $8,000 that belonged to Enid Korean Church of Grace in Enid, Oklahoma. They turned it into the police, and when asked their motive, Dorner said, quote, it's an integrity thing. The military stresses integrity. There was a couple of thousand dollars, and if people are willing to give that to a church, it must be pretty important to them. And he said that his mother taught him honesty and integrity, and yet that that seems to be strange, uh, like at first glance, when you look at the sorts of things that seems to be uh, out there in terms of what he's, his actions over the last uh, few weeks. Well, I don't condone what he did. I don't endorse that. Uh, I, I have never condoned murder or the taking of human life. But that doesn't mean that I don't understand it. And over a, a long life myself, uh, with three decades uh, as an investigative journalist of investigating uh, crimes in the U.S. military, crimes by U.S. special operations, the CIA, uh, the banking industry, and, uh, and, and so forth, what's clear is that there are breaking points beyond which people get pushed. It is not for me to you know, judge or... Uh, or, uh, you know, say I agree or support. I just recognize those breaking points. Now, you have in Chris Dorner a guy who served in the Middle East who saw the crimes of the United States government over and over again. That's why we have so many veterans, uh, one a day, committing suicide now. Uh, and that's why we have very strong movements in uh, the Iraq veterans against the war, uh, veterans for peace. Uh, so many active veterans who are sick and disgusted because they ha- they were not able to function honorably uh, in totally dishonorable circumstances, but they did the best they could. They came home with a hope in their heart that they could find something uh, that justified what every warrior warrior carries uh, in in themselves, which is a desire to to uh, to serve the right, uh, what is what is correct, what is proper. Uh, he was no doubt sick of that, and he had wanted to be a policeman with LAPD for a long time. He was an explorer scout in Northern California, and and I have no doubt that after having served his tours in Iraq, once uh, one uh, he uh, served while he was an active duty police officer, and came back, he wanted to settle into something uh, that was honorable. Uh, and then when he did what he thought he was supposed to do, which was to report uh, incidents of excessive force. He ran into uh, a pretty fetid, incestuous, uh, good old boy, old guard network within LAPD that chewed him up. But more than that, it failed to respect him, both as uh, an educated black man, but also as a decorated warrior. And I think that that's, that's where he snapped. Uh, and and uh, I understand his tactics. Um, I have written a great deal in both my books, Crossing the Rubicon, or actually in, in one of my books, Crossing the Rubicon, and in my newsletter from the wilderness about special forces tactics procedures. I have spent many years making friends, working with, associating with uh, members of, former members of U.S. Army Special Forces and Navy SEALs. And the tactics that he employed are straight out of a special operations war book. What special operations people have done for the CIA 
uh, amongst their other missions, like you know the 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 movie ones, like blowing up a bridge or rescuing something somebody, uh, is they have made books. They have compiled enormous amounts of information, uh, largely done by the CIA, on the family members of political targets that the agency or, or the United States government wanted to influence and or control or neutralize. And he employed exactly those same tactics. He fought the way he was trained, and that's another reason why he was so dangerous. He probably would have talked about that had he gone to trial. Mm. Now, he they basically pre- that was obviously present prevented with this uh, uh, attack on the cabin, the the, uh, the fire that consumed him. And and I've heard some comparisons made with the uh, the uh, what happened at the David Koresh compound in Waco with uh, you know overzealous behavior on the part of authorities fire consuming the compound in spite of uh, no one at the facility having been formally charged with anything initially, uh, and the investigation being stonewalled. How responsible is it to make comparisons between the two? Well, it's, it, it's not just between the two. When I was on the street with LAPD in 1974 as a probationary police officer, we had uh, the LAPD had, a, had an armed confrontation with the Symbionese Liberation Army in south-central Los Angeles on 54th Street. Uh, I was tied to that. I, I remember that extremely well. And the end result of that encounter also was the house being burned down after being flooded with tear gas. This is this is a very, very consistent pattern. It's not, it, it didn't just happen with Waco. And I should add that, that that wasn't overzealousness. Members of Delta Force went in and assassinated, killed everybody in the compound. There's video of that. Uh, so the the uh, house burning down is 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 a is a cookie cutter cut and paste. You can think of many. I can think of many many examples where a burning house was the end result. Mm. I've um, I've heard uh, Max Rub- Blumenthal on uh, RT talking about the uh, well two aspects of this: uh, the media deference to power and uh, the impunity. Of the Los Angeles Police Department, I, given your background, I think you're ideally suited to, to comment on both aspects of this. So, I mean, what what other questions do you feel? Well, starting with the media aspect, what what other questions should journalists be asking that you don't see them asking? Well, it's not. I am a journalist. I mean, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm a very accomplished investigative journalist, and I've worked with uh, uh, professional uh, standards my whole life, uh, those that a journalist would follow. It it is not what a journalist should or shouldn't be doing. Individuals don't have a call now, even within uh, corporate media. It's the corporate structure, the corporate ownership of the media, which is allied with the banks, with the infinite growth paradigm, that prohibits a journalist from doing a journalist's job. Uh, So what I would say with regard to the journalism around Dorner, probably two points, one of which is that uh, no journalist out there now uh, has the will, uh, and every journalist out there now has the knowledge that if they were tried to actually behave like journalists, they would probably lose their jobs and their stories would never get printed. Uh, the other part of that is is that after September the 11th, when I started writing Crossing the Rubicon, when I was publishing From the Wilderness, the press was filled with enormous, voluminous, in-your-face inconsistencies in reportage uh, that should have been followed up. Uh, and uh, independent journalists like myself and a great many others, I would, uh, and scholars like Michelle Chosidowski, uh like Daniel Hopsicker, 
uh, a great many of us were methodical in documenting all of the inconsistencies in the media. But what we saw after September the 11th and after the publication of my book, Crossing the Rubicon in 2004, was that the media has never been held accountable for their errors of commission and omission. Nobody has held their feet to the fire. So if that didn't happen after September 11th, arguably a much, much, much bigger, worse crime than anything committed by Chris Dorner, it, it, it's not going to happen with Chris Dorner. Nobody's going to hold media to be accountable now. Uh, and, and this just further adds to the complete separation and, and the schizophrenic, almost psychotic breakdown of the press releases we tell ourselves about the way society works and the way it actually does work. That being said, uh, now that uh, the you know what Chris Dorner might have been able to say is is now been he's essentially been silenced. Uh, is there anywhere to go with this uh, Chris Dorner story? No, I mean I have dropped it completely. I mean you his have. only value uh, to me, his great value, not only it was a huge value, was was with him being alive. Uh, and able to talk, able to breathe, able, if you will, to just to be uh, a, a standing, glaring uh, poster board of all of the great inconsistencies in uh, in uh, in our civilization today. Uh, and now that he is gone, there's nobody to challenge what the what the official story is, and it is it, it is totally a uh, uh, Sisyphean struggle to even try to make something like that happen. There's nobody going to hold anybody accountable, and if you will, the the, uh, the ruling paradigm or meme, meme is in complete control uh, of what the official uh, story is. Mm. Now, um, you, you, you stated previously that you do not condone what Chris Dorner did, but you do understand, and uh, you've had your own experiences with the LAPD. He took his actions, and, and you took yours. You, you left. Um, so I, I'm wanting to just probe a little bit more about uh, your your understanding of uh, uh, of his essential complaints about the LAPD through the lens of your own experience. How does a good cop, a decent cop, adapt to that kind of culture? It all depends upon how far one is willing to go and still uh, seemingly negotiate with themselves a place in which they can be comfortable. Uh, I could no longer be a cop, and it wasn't organized crime in LAPD. It was the Central Intelligence Agency in LAPD. The Central Intelligence Agency was committing the crimes of smuggling the drugs into the country. The Central Intelligence Agency was deeply embedded and still is in the Los Angeles Police Department and many others. Uh, and that led me to fundamentally question. I was Before I made the decision to resign, of course, that was prompted in the end by death threats and people shooting at me, which is incentive. Uh, but uh, I had been negotiating with myself, saying, well, maybe I can find a job, like I can become a career homicide detective, where I wouldn't have to deal with that. But I realized that what I was doing was just sweeping something horrendous under the rug, and, and, and I fundamentally came to a realization that I could no longer trust that what I was doing or who I was working for was the right thing. And in my case, uh, with the decision to resign, I had reached a fundamental decision inside that no matter what, I was not going to compromise my honor. 
And I think that uh, in his uh, in his profound frustration, Chris Dorner reached the same thing, but he snapped where he lost the judgment that allowed him to uh, commit the crimes that he did. Uh, but I do have to say, and this is, again, not to defend what he did, that he showed better control of his rules of engagement and his playbook than, let's say, the U.S. military did in the video that was uh, released by Bradley Manning of, 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 of uh, you know, helicopter uh, gunships murdering a, a large group of innocent civilians when they were not armed. Uh, randomly, uh, and not 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 randomly, but let's say w- w- with a with a scattergun approach, without much care for that. So he did show some care some care for the rules of engagement, you know, and he was trying to find a safe place where he could walk and live uh, in 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 a system which probably, from his perspective, offered him no safe place to be. Hmm. Now, there's, of course, one other uh, ingredient of this that I, I think we need to, to touch on, and that's the issue of race. I know that for people far away from uh, Los Angeles, I mean, if we know one thing that uh, LAPD is notorious for is the famous Rodney King beating, captured on video, four white cops beating up on a uh, on a black man, and, and the riots that uh, resulted from that. You know, how significant a factor was that? Uh, as you point out, he's not only educated, but a black man. And how, how does that play into this uh, whole scenario? All of, the, all of those institutional memories are still there. And, uh, and I was very close to what was happening in L.A. during the Rodney King riots at the time. I was the press spokesman for the Ross Perot campaign, living in L.A., but I was very close friends with a police commissioner, black man, Jesse Brewer, who had been my commanding officer when I first ran afoul of the CIA, and he had backed me up, and he was a man of enormous integrity, one of the great teachers of my life. And and he and I talked uh, at length about the changes that were coming after uh, Chief Darrell Gates left LAPD and the first black chief, uh, Willie Williams, was brought in. And he and I both understood clearly that although a great many changes were made you know, following Rodney King, the core good old boy, the core old guard network was still in place, and this was the machinery, if you will, that controlled the day-to-day running of the operations of the police department, and that was not going to be cured. And and There's an old saying that those who win in a rigged game get stupid, and uh, that old guard has had such control in uh, Los Angeles for so long uh, that I rightly believe that they uh, felt that they were untouchable. The race issues are still very strong. Los Angeles is still a city with deep, simmering racial tensions. And again, this is another reason why a living, breathing Christopher Dorner on trial uh, was like sticking uh, uh, you know, a, a, a highway flare into a pile of kindling. Um, uh, and, and those tensions were going to increase. Uh, one side effect of the whole incident, I do believe, is, is that every police officer, black, white, military veteran, uh, are all going inside now and asking themselves profound, fundamental questions about what they believe in. Their cognitive dissonance is probably off the charts. And uh, taking the long view from my career, uh, talking about uh, the, corrupt, uh, the corruption of industrial civilization, um, I think that may be a good thing in that we hope to come to a point where those who use their will to enforce uh, and, and impose 
uh, imperialism, uh, colonialism, neocolonialism, uh, economic expansion, infinite growth, the destruction of the environment, uh, that, uh, that, that all comes to an end when the people who hold the guns and the people who enforce that system stop doing it. Uh, and that's a place where we are now as a species as a whole. And uh, so I have some hope, maybe. Yeah. Is that what you meant when you said on your recent um, ra- on a recent episode of your radio program that uh, Mr. Dorner represented a crack in the foundation of the American police state? No, he represented not a crack. He re- he, he 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 was multiple cracks uh, that cannot be held together, that cannot coexist in the same place. And unfortunately, all of those cracks were housed within one human psyche. Uh, and as such, that's a, that's a microcosm, I think, of where all seven billion of us who share this planet are at this moment. Okay. Well, Mike Rupert, I want to thank you very much for sharing those insights with us and uh, for being um, a guest on the Global Research News Hour. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, you guys have a great show. Keep it up. Thank you. Mike Rupert is an investigative journalist and author, the founder of the uh, now-defunct From the Wilderness newsletter and the website CollapseNet, and he hosts the Lifeboat Hour for the Progressive Radio Network. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at the website for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. On Thursday, February 14th, the nonprofit group Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth put out a release about what it called a potentially groundbreaking opportunity for the 9-11 Truth movement. Three hours of detailed 9-11 evidence is to be presented and considered in a court of law where the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, will be challenged over the inaccurate and biased manner in which it has portrayed the events and evidence of 9-11. The court challenge is scheduled for Monday, February 25th, in the small town of Horsham in the United Kingdom. Joining us on the line are two individuals uh, with a very much of an interest in this court case. One of them is Peter Drew. He is with the AE911 Truth Action Group, based in the United Kingdom. And also joining us is Richard Gage, who is the founder and CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Um, could I, uh, maybe I'll start with uh, you, Richard. Uh, first of all, maybe you could just bring us up to speed on, on what the, the specific pieces of evidence or the, the critical pieces of evidence in terms of uh, what, dis- what you see as discrediting the, the official explanation for the uh, uh, collapse of the Twin Towers. Sure, Michael, and thanks for uh, having the courage to air this uh, critically important uh, myth-shattering information. I represent 1,700 architects and engineers who are calling for a new investigation of the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. And most people don't know anything about the third skyscraper, a 47-story high-rise vet on 9-11 in the afternoon uh, collapses straight down uniformly, symmetrically into its own footprint at freefall acceleration in just under seven seconds. And when architects, engineers, and others see this, they automatically, intuitively know that fires 
didn't cause this destruction. In fact, when we show them the fires, especially when there's only a few small fires scattered throughout the building, uh, fires never brought down a skyscraper and, and could not possibly have destroyed it in the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition. So they know, and they end up signing our petition. Uh, and then we direct their attention toward the anomalies that are found in the World Trade Center towers themselves, um, because what we're told is that there's a pile driver, This, in the case of the North Tower, this 12-story section of building above the point of jet plane impacts that uh, due to column failure, uh, due to the fires, caused the uh, building to drove the building down to the ground, basically. But what we see in the videos is that that upper section has been destroyed in really what looks exactly like Building 7. It's kind of a miniature controlled demolition. And firefighters are describing explosions wrapping all the way around like a belt. And they see flashes of light at the onset of the destruction as well. And what they and, and what what else is seen in, in the videos is an incredibly uh, mushrooming event with thousands of explosions hurling four-ton perimeter wall units laterally at 60 miles an hour, landing 600 feet away, uh, such that uh, all the debris almost is distributed in a 1,400-foot diameter around each of these buildings. So we don't have 110 stories that are stacked up at the bottom of either of these uh, skyscrapers that we would expect in a gravitational collapse, right? Gravity works downward. But all of the 90,000 tons of concrete has been pulverized into uh, powder, really. And, and so this is evident in midair. Uh, with all of these explosions distributed throughout the lower Manhattan area and officials uh, from the USGS and other environmental firms uh, find in the all this powder um, small iron microspheres which are uh, composed of the ingredients of the residue of thermite. Uh, thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. And, and this, these iron microspheres, there must be 10,000 tons of them distributed throughout the lower, 10 tons, um, uh, throughout lower Manhattan, all this dust. Um, and not only this, but a small team of scientists find uh, in all the samples that they collected uh, this is the team led by Niels Parrott in Copenhagen, um, the unignited residue of nanothermite, a very high-tech form of thermite, which should not be found in the dust samples uh, whatsoever, small red-gray chips, uh, red, uh, the red side composed of extremely tiny particles of iron oxide and aluminum powder that are smaller than the, uh, a thousand times smaller than human hair. Um, so these uh, these are made only in the most sophisticated uh, defense contracting laboratories. And so see. when all this evidence is presented to architects and engineers, uh, they are shocked. And that's why we have now so many, once they become aware of it, 
this evidence, uh, they end up signing our petition and, and joining us in our call for a real investigation that includes all of this evidence. Peter Drew, uh, maybe... Sorry, maybe I can get to Peter Drew on the line for a second. Now, this this court challenge, uh, as I understand it, it involves um, a documentary filmmaker not paying his uh, telephone license fee. How, how do how does that turn into uh, the sort of tribunal on nine uh, eleven? Uh, yes, yeah, it's a slightly uh, it's an interesting case um, and and slightly complicated. Um, so that Tony Rook, who is uh, yeah, he's a documentary maker, and he's the um, he, he's the man that's uh, that's going to be in court on the 25th of February next next week. Um, the BBC um, have rules and regulations because they're a, fu- a publicly funded um, network. They have uh, rules and regulations in place where they have to uh, present information that is accurate, impartial. Um, and if they make making mistakes, they're required to correct those. So there's, there's legal, formal agreements in place um, for them to present information in that manner. And if they don't, then the public are able to, to formally challenge this process. Um, and in the UK, the public are also required to pay a TV licence fee, um, and, and those fees go towards funding the BBC's operations. Um, so what happened in 2011, the BBC showed... Uh, two documentaries as part of the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And those documentaries are very much, uh, in our opinion, um, breached uh, their operating regulations of being accurate, impartial, um, and uh, and fair and balanced. Mm. Um, So the BBC were challenged very strongly on, on those documentaries um, according to a lot of the evidence that uh, Richard Gage has just explained to you, um, that was that was all thrown out by the BBC through the complaints process. Uh, we got a number of experts to come in and, and support that, including uh, Richard, um, architects and engineers. Um, as an offshoot of that, Tony Rook uh, decided that he would refuse to pay his licence fee um, on the basis that the BBC was not showing the true evidence of 9-11, uh, the sort of evidence that Richard had just described, um, and therefore that he felt he was justified uh, in not paying his licence fee um, and that the BBC were in breach of their uh, agreement with the public uh, to be accurate and impartial. Um, so that's, that's how this case has come about. Um, so essentially, uh, Tony Rook had been charged with a, the crime of not paying his licence fee uh, but he has an opportunity um, in the courtroom next week uh, to defend himself against those charges, and he's and as part of that, he has three hours to present the evidence um, to to back up his actions. Um, and as part of that, he's formed a, a very formidable uh, presentation and defence team. Um, so it's it's going to be uh, an interesting case. There's going to be a lot of um, very detailed um, evidence about 9/11. Uh, the sort of evidence that Rich has just described, uh, and that sort of evidence has never been seen in a in a courtroom in the UK before. No, well, yeah, at, at any level, I suppose. Yeah, um, at any level, yeah. Yeah. So, what would be the 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 potential repercussions of this? Then, I mean, like once the, well, the evidence is presented, I mean, basically, the what's on the line here is was he justified in not uh, paying his bill? That's essentially what's uh, at stake here in terms yeah, of the. So, so, so the job of the of the presentation or his defence team is to is to um, sh- 
show that the BBC uh, exactly how they were in breach of, uh, you know, their requirements to be accurate and impartial. And we have plenty of uh, of evidence for that. Um, you know, we've got very strong presenters uh, to, to demonstrate that. The, the implications of the outcomes, um, well, if the judge decides that uh, he was within his rights, that, that the BBC uh, were in breach of, of their requirements um, and have withheld evidence and, and have presented evidence in a, in a biased uh, manner, then, um, then that, I guess that sets a, a pretty, quite an interesting precedent in that potentially um, other people could uh, also decide not to pay their TV licence fee on the same basis. Uh, and those fees uh, go towards funding the operations of the BBC. Mm. Which Could goes to aiding and abetting terrorism, uh, which is the reason Tony is not paying that fee, because uh, he is required by UK law to not uh, provide any funds to any organisation that aids and abets terrorism. And the cover-up of the truth about 9-11 is just that. Well... If I might suggest... Yeah, that's correct. Richard makes a very good point. And that's, that's actually technically the, the point that uh, Tony's arguing in his court case is that he is... There's an uh, a, a anti-terrorism law um, that, that states that um, you know, people can't uh, fund uh, anything that supports terrorism. And, that's, and what, what Tony is saying is that by, by, by the BBC withholding the, the true evidence um, that it's helping to support, um, you know, those some of those terrorist uh, terrorists that were involved in certain elements of, of 9/11. We, we obviously don't know exactly what elements. That's why we need a new investigation. But that's his argument: is that, is that by withholding that evidence, it's supporting the terrorists, and, and therefore, is in, in, uh, he is, in his eyes, he's breaking the law mm-hmm. uh, by paying his license fee, and it's supporting terrorism. It seems to me that that, that that the principle at stake here that you're you're by not you you're going to refuse to pay something you're obliged to pay because you don't want to support terrorism that a variant of that argument could be used to justify and I'm not saying I advocate this but uh, it just seems to me logically that one could apply that same principle to not pay your income taxes uh, in the United States you know for essentially the same reason am I wrong about well, that, that or? Well, well no you're, you're right and that's that's actually uh, that action's been taken by uh, one of the presenters um, on this panel, actually. He's, he's already um, attempted to, to take that very action uh, in saying that his income tax is, is potentially uh, helping to fund the same thing. So um, it, it does open up, um, you know, quite interesting possibilities. Mm. So, um, yeah, so the, the, again, this is the, the first time this has actually happened in a court. Um, Richard, can you see something like this take, I mean, spreading throughout the United States, uh, depending on what the outcome of this uh, this court trial is? Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, we're, we're pretty excited about the opportunities for the expansion of not only awareness of the truth about uh, the destruction of the three skyscrapers on 9-11, but actions uh, taken... Uh, by individuals in civil disobedience, as such as what Tony has done spreading throughout the U.S., would be uh, a very positive step. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Richard, I mean, maybe one one last question. Uh, what you, in terms, you've been 
forced you you've been doing this uh, research and these presentations for about 6 or 7 years now uh what is your your sense is, is this actually going anywhere are we seeing any kind of a, a turning of the tide that that would sort of help you know bring some optimism to people who feel that justice has not been done where 911 is concerned yes uh those people in the united states who are activists uh are talking to people out on the street and their friends neighbors they what we found is that there's a great more uh, really a great deal of openness uh these days versus like four years ago, uh, when most people were completely unaware of it. Today, half the people you talk to are aware of it, uh, that, that there was something wrong uh, with uh, the government's version of the destruction of these towers, and for that uh, they know that they were brought down by controlled demolition. They've seen a video or they've heard about our organization. Uh, it is... Uh, it is moving in the right direction, absolutely. It has been a slow process for me starting six years ago uh, when there were no architects and engineers standing up uh, crying out about the destruction of these buildings. Uh, it is, it is, it, I have, we have great, a great deal of hope. Uh, we were on Geraldo with our engineers, uh, Geraldo at large on Fox News, uh, with an engineer and a family member. And Geraldo showed Building 7 coming down and said, hmm, those 1,350 architects and engineers must know something I don't. It sure looks like a controlled demolition. Mm. I'm open to it. Yeah. Uh, but that was it. You know, that was a couple of years ago. we got some more breakthroughs to happen. Yeah. I, it, it does seem to me, though, that uh, there, there have been other uh, crimes uh, comparable. Uh, one that comes to mind is the Kennedy assassination of 50 years ago, where similarly you've had a lot of evidence being presented in, in forums such as what you mentioned, which discredit the official story there. And uh, I, and it, it's not obvious that uh, justice has been done in that sense. I, I don't know. Is 9/11 fundamentally different, or it's different because of the technology that we have to distribute the message, and that is the internet, and uh, it changes the whole game. So we're very hopeful. We've been speaking with Richard Gage, founder and CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, along with his UK counterpart, Peter Drew, about an upcoming court case in the UK challenging the BBC's coverage of 9-11 evidence. February is Black History Month, the time when Americans and people around the world are called upon to reflect on the triumphs and struggles of the African diaspora. It's generally felt that there has been progress for African Americans, and many, including African American, many African Americans themselves, point to the rise of Barack Obama to the American presidency as a manifestation of that progress. I have with me right now Cynthia McKinney. She is a member of a former member of the Democratic Party, having served six terms in the United States House of Representatives. She had left the the Democratic Party and became in two thousand eight the Green Party of the United States nominee for the presidency. And she was the first African American woman to have represented Georgia in the House. She ran against Barack Obama in 2008. 
So we're going to discuss with Cynthia McKinney um, her thoughts about uh, Barack Obama, about uh, the state of America under his presidency, and uh, a little bit about the uh, power dynamics uh, in play today. So Cynthia McKinney, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to share a few minutes with you. Okay. Now, uh, Cynthia, you were, um, as I mentioned, you, you served from 1992 uh, to about 2002, and then uh, you were, uh, uh, had that lost the, the, nom- the Democratic nomination for a time, and then you were able to return back briefly. Um, could I ask you, first of all, your own, uh, a little bit more about your background, uh, your, uh, your decision to run in uh, in a uh, in a, a national election uh, for Congress, uh, you know, what what motivated you to to do that? Well, first of all, the McKinney name is a household name among the old time civil rights community, and so um, the the idea of having someone with my background actually represent folks in the United States Congress was not really a stretch for the civil rights community. It was, however, a stretch for the good old boys that dominate Georgia politics, or certainly that dominated Georgia politics back in the day, and still do, for that matter. And um, so... As a result of the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and its subsequent various interpretations by uh, various courts, it was clear that Georgia was going to have to integrate it, or should I say desegregate, its congressional delegation. And uh, this is all driven by... Um, the population changes, the demographic changes, well, not so much changes because black, uh, blacks have always been a dominant group in, in the state of Georgia just because Georgia is an old confederacy and, uh, there was a time throughout the entire confederacy where the Africans who were enslaved outnumbered the white slave owners, and that's why the founding uh, members of the uh, United States itself decided that they would have to count the black population as three-fifths of one person um, just to diminish the impact of that huge black reservoir of labor, or that huge res- huge reservoir of black labor. That's remarkable. Well, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so uh, the good old boys, who are the descendants of the slave masters, the slave owners, the plantation owners, and their employees, um are uh, the ones who found it very difficult to accept that um, 
the politics of Georgia could be anything other than them selecting who the next member of Congress was going to be. And unfortunately, um, they decided, they broke down and they decided, okay, if we've got to desegregate and have more blacks in the Congress, then we're going to be the ones to select those blacks. And um, that's exactly what they did. The governor had his um, choice as to who was going to go into the Congress as a black person. And the Speaker of the House had his person that he chose to be the next black member of Congress. And um, that's the way it was, and that's the way politics was carried out in the state of Georgia. Black people, despite the Civil Rights Act, despite the Voting Rights Act, black people didn't really have much say in what happened in the political affairs of the state of Georgia. And um, so I decided to utilize my power in the Georgia legislature to change that, or at least to change it to the extent that I could. And so um, I sat on the House Reapportionment Committee in the Georgia legislature, and from that perch, I championed a plan to increase the number of black representatives in the Georgia legislature, or let's put it this way, to desegregate the legislature by allowing the black voters to have an equal opportunity to elect their candidate of choice. Now, that doesn't mean that their candidate of choice would be a black person, because in many instances, the candidate of choice for black voters has not been a black person, but it would at least allow black voters to have a say, or more of a say, or a more just say, in who could purport to represent them. And um, the result of these various reapportionment and redistricting plans was that Georgia uh, elected, Georgians elected their largest um, black, legislative delegation of all of the 50 states. Georgia has the largest one, and I'm proud to have uh, played a small role in um, that factoid. In addition to that, um, the state of Georgia also has a um, uh, representation, congressional representation, that also allows to the extent that black voters can make a difference um, on that level, uh, that at least allows black voters to have a say in who the congressional representation is. Now, the problem that we have in terms of policy and advocacy is the, a systemic problem. So the system of political representation in the United States is skewed away from the values of the people who actually vote and focuses more on the values of the special interests that finance elections. Now, you've really hit on something there because 
I mean, so I, I, I first heard about you uh, in the context of, of the 9-11 attacks and, and your uh, courage, if I may say, in, in daring to challenge that, uh, that consensus openly. And it, it did strike me as I've looked at some of the other positions that you've taken that uh, you, you seem to go very much against the grain of some of those special interests. Um, I wonder if you could... Uh, you, you, what you've, you've pointed to within that congressional district in Georgia is, is the extent to which, you know, you don't really have a people's candidate. And while it may not be as severe uh, uh, an obstruction uh, in other parts of the, the country, uh, you, you still do seem to have that same phenomenon of uh, the people not really being represented or whoever it is that gets elected. They, they've already got certain links to those corporate interests. Yes. Um, and um, uh, that is something that we have to work on, mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly. Um, you know, our system is completely corrupted. Mm-hmm. And we have to highlight, put put the spotlight on that corruption, call it out, and uh, try to sanitize the system as best we can. Could you help us get a little bit more insights as a, as a, somebody who worked on Capitol Hill for uh, you know over a decade? Um, what, what what is the the main factor, if I might say? I mean, are people pretty much bought and paid for by the time they've made it to Congress, or are are they just intercepted by these lobbyists along the way, and and that just you know bends their ear and their will? What what's the bigger factor there? It's um pretty much um where um. I, how can I say, I, I, what comes to, the, the image that comes to my mind is um, a quarterback um, dropping back deep in the pocket, ready to let go of a Hail Mary pass that he's, that the catcher, the receiver, is bound to catch and then out of nowhere, somebody intercepts the ball. <laughs> and, and that's what comes to my mind. That was former Georgia Congresswoman and U.S. presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney speaking about the influence of big money and other special interests on the U.S. system of government. Part two of that interv- interview will air next week. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across the country. We are also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network app, prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.